Hey, 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 all you nasty pasty listeners. I'm back again. It's me, Mr. Andy Roberts, back to debauch a whole audience of eager fans with bone-shattering, nerve-splaying descriptions of movies most worthy of being banned by over-censorious governments. Maybe not as exaggerated as that, but still very true. I've compiled a list of films from the same categories as the Video Nasties, a group of films so horrific that the British government safeguarded us and our children from them by promptly banning them from the video shop shelves. And yeah, this really happened. Jump forward almost 40 years later, the same films are now out on general releases or special editions, making you wonder exactly what has changed since those days of the fear-mongering. To personally demonstrate the absurdity of the government's sanctified video burnings, which yes, also did happen, I call on my list of films from the same era and go through them, highlighting similarities to the nasties themselves or differences, and then pondering why these examples were left out of the DPP's naming and shaming. Last week, we covered variations and reworkings of classic monsters. This week, we're back onto everyone's favourite popcorn genre, slashers. But it's theatrical slashes, though. Slices and dices set amongst the backdrop of the West End, Hollywood, film sets, stages, behind the camera, backstage, you name it. We still have the requisite victims, but they're all actors and actresses stalked by a maniac for various reasons. Today's films are 1983's Curtains and 1987's Stage Fright. Now, slashes, of course, need no introduction. And as Shakespeare used to say, the whole world's a stage. So I think we can skip the history lesson on theatre and filmmaking within films. Let's therefore open the show with our first film, Curtains. Actress Samantha Sherwood fails to impress director Jonathan Stryker on the stage for a film he is casting called Audra, about a mentally unhinged woman. As part of her method acting, Stryker has Samantha check into an asylum and she realistically attacks him in front of the doctors. Impressed by her own performance, she agrees with being committed in order to glean a better understanding of her character. 
After spending a long time in the asylum, Samantha becomes more and more disturbed, even more so when she reads in a magazine that Stryker is going ahead with six aspiring actresses in casting sessions without her, having seemingly abandoned her completely. She escapes with the help of a friend and vows to get revenge on Stryker. One of the actresses called Amanda has a bizarre nightmare involving her doll, which causes her to be run over. As she wakes up and wanders her apartment, she's then suddenly attacked by a killer wearing a hag mask who stabs her to death before stealing the creepy doll. The other five women arrive at Stryker's house. Patty, a comedian, Brooke, a veteran actress, Tara, a singer, Lorian, a ballet dancer, and Christy, a figure ice skater. Just as the girls begin to socialise, they're introduced to Matthew, the caretaker, when suddenly Samantha appears and sits herself down, shocking Stryker. She later confronts him, but he dismisses her, saying that she's no longer Audra and that he will commit her back to the asylum if she causes trouble. Brooke expresses her fear of not getting the part, whilst Patty smokes marijuana and relaxes with a set of puppets. When Christy overhears Stryker and Samantha argue, they pass it off as merely a rehearsal and she's sent away. Tara seduces Matthew in the outdoor jacuzzi, whilst elsewhere on the grounds, someone sharpens a sickle inside a shed. Christy wakes up bright and early the next morning to go ice skating on a frozen pond. When her music stops playing, though, she notices a hand sticking out of the snow. She uncovers Amanda's creepy doll, only for the killer in the hag mask to skate over and attack her with the sickle. She throws the doll at the killer, knocking them to the ground, and she tries to get away whilst injured. Resting against a tree, the killer suddenly grabs her and slits her throat. Stryker reveals during a group audition that a note indicated to him that Christy has left, whilst Samantha chooses to crash the audition and offer up her own acting skills. Stryker humiliates her by forcing her to wear the hag mask, the same as the killer's, and asks that she seduce him, only to be told that she's wearing a mask constantly. During an impromptu audition with Patty, he dismisses her talents and she explodes into a rant, seemingly pleasing Stryker, who now sees more potential in her. While Brooke does her nails in the bathroom, the killer lurks in her shower and escapes through her window, just as Brooke discovers Christie's severed head in the toilet. When she gets Stryker to look, the head is suddenly missing, and in response to her frantic fear, Stryker seduces her and gets her into bed. Tara relates to Patty that Matthew is now missing, and it's very suspicious about Brooke's claim about Christy. Patty, however, dismisses this as simply Brooke's attempt to get more into Audra's character. Samantha walks in on Stryker and Brooke in bed together, and seems to become more unhinged. Lorian begins dancing in her room to relax, only to be suddenly grabbed from behind and stabbed to death by the killer. Whilst Stryker and Brooke get dressed, the killer enters and shoots the pair dead, causing Stryker's body to fall and become impaled on glass. Tara, hearing all the commotion and discovering Stryker's body, flees the premises but fails to start her car. After coming across Matthew's corpse dead in the jacuzzi, she looks in the prop warehouse for a spare car part, unaware that the killer is actually watching her. Pursued constantly, Tara manages to finally get the upper hand and is about to demask the killer when he suddenly springs to life and attacks her again. Hiding amongst some mannequins, Tara discovers that one of them is actually Lorian and frantically gets herself into a ventilation shaft to hide. When she thinks that the coast is clear and is about to emerge, the killer drags her further into the vents, having crept up behind her. The last two people left, Patty and Samantha, settle down in the kitchen to have a glass of champagne and discuss the role of Audra. 
Samantha reveals what Stryker did to her after she was committed, and then reveals that she was the one who has shot both Stryker and Brooke. Patty, however, in response, reveals that she has killed all the others, as she stabs Samantha to death. Patty is then shown to be in an asylum herself, maniacally replaying all the things that she has said in her head. So what the hell are you doing here? I'm an actress. You're an actress. There's an echo in here. Your turn will come. What makes you think you can act? I know I can. Could. Can. So, act. What? Act for us. I could do a prepared piece. I've seen them all before. You are such a perfect lady. So beautiful. So refined. What if you weren't so gifted? How would you act then? I don't think... Good. Don't think. Just do it. Make yourself ugly for Can you? What if your face were different? It could be one day, you know. Hideous. Repulsive. Put it on. Now seduce me. No words. You can make sounds if you like, but no lines. Touching. Just the mask. Use your eyes. Your mouth. That horrible beauty. Make me love you. Make me desire you. You're beautiful, remember. You can't be denied. This is a mask, too. Are you satisfied? Curtains is one of those films that started life quite early on in the slasher cycle, springing forth from an idea born of Peter Simpson of the Simcom Company, who'd been responsible for 1980's Prom Night. Now, due to its cinematic success, he was eager to follow up the film with another slasher film. Like Prom Night, and some of the films that we've discovered before, like My Bloody Valentine and Terror Train, Curtains was to be filmed in Canada under the extensive tax-free, bursary-heavy filmmaking climate. So that it does indeed mean that Curtains is a Canucksploitation film. Simpson employed the screenwriter, Robert Guzer Jr., who'd been responsible for Prom Night's storyline, as well as hiring Richard Tupka, a cinematographer, in order to direct it. After a short time, Guzer Jr. came up with a draft script entitled Curtains, playing on both the theatrical implications and the slang term for being dead. 
The original script had major differences with the end result film, first of which was the film's opening. In the final film, the extended introductory scene shows Samantha checking into a mental institution and becoming slowly aware that Stryker has abandoned her. In the script, the film goes straight into the six actresses preparing for their weekend audition at Stryker's place. Amanda's dream sequence in the film was originally for real in the script, with her dying on the way to Stryker's. And in the main house, the characters discuss a legend involving a banshee who is a sinister harbinger of death, who signals murder by screaming a horrendous wailing. While the banshee mask sort of survives in the final film, it does end up being quite incidental with no mention of a legend at all. The film's murderous set pieces were also much more styled after a classic murder mystery, with the killer not actually participating directly in the killings, but instead luring victims into booby traps. Some of the film's more memorable stalking sequences were also quite different. The scene of Tara being chased through the prop warehouse was originally a chase on the snowmobiles, for example, whilst the memorable sequence of Christie being stalked by the killer on ice skates was drastically shorter in the original script. Matthew's death was also originally on screen, just before the Tara sequence, in which he's killed whilst driving a snowmobile by the killer, which then crashes through a window and alerting Tara. The ending too was quite different, featuring a now insane Patty reciting her comedy sketches to all of the bodies of her victims, now set up on chairs on a large stage. This ending was not unlike the similar scene in the climax of the video Nasty, Madhouse from 1980, and even Happy Birthday to Me from 1981. The shoot originally began in November of 1980, but problems hit almost as soon as the principal photography started, mainly due to the clashes between producer Peter Simpson and director Richard Chupka, who both had very different ideas for the film's execution. Chupka was intent on making the film much more refined and stylish as slashes go, with more of an emphasis on character interactions and artistic flourishes to heighten the sinister drama unfolding between the cast and the killer. Simpson, however, due to the success of Prom Night, wanted to put stalk and slash sequences worthy of the slasher boom, which had just exploded really in the wake of Halloween and Friday the 13th. After principal photography finished in late December of 1980, the production ceased until after Christmas, but due to Peter Simpson's dissatisfaction with the initial work print, the film's materials were shelved and then remained unreleased. Close to a year after the original production wrapped, Simpson decided to undertake rewrites and re-edits to change the film into one that he felt would survive more in the slasher-heavy film market. Bringing back the original cast, he reshot several scenes in early 1982 in order to hype up the slasher elements. So the opening scenes of Samantha were introduced to present her as a red herring, whilst Amanda's death sequence was reconfigured to happen when she awakens from her nightmare. All references to the Banshee legend are removed, and the scene of Tara being pursued through the prop house was scripted and shot. Matthew's death was reshot to be off-screen, and Simpson's wife heavily disliked the original shot ending, as she felt that Patty would not realistically be able to move all of the bodies to a stage in order to do her performance. So instead, a new scene was shot depicting Patty going over her comedy routine in her head whilst committed to an asylum. The majority of Chupka's footage ended up on the cutting room floor during the final edit, close to 45 minutes in total, including a scene with Christie being rejected by her skating coach, some extra dialogue scenes for Matthew and Lorian, and actually some special effect sequences done by Greg Canham, which were omitted entirely. 
The cast and crew began to wonder whether the film would ever be released, as the reshoots had delayed production further and further to an almost unbearable level. Apart from the major creative differences that plagued the film's production, there were also some issues with the actresses. Samantha Egar was particularly worried about the film's production, as she felt that the characters were poorly written and was anxious to get just paid for her role in the film, as she cared very little for the artistic merit in the midst of the film's issues. Celine Lomez, who was in 1979's Plague, was originally cast as Brooke, but due to Simpson being unimpressed with her acting skills, she was dropped from the production. For many years, it was rumoured that it was because she refused to do a scene in the nude, but considering her replacement, Linda Thorson, equally does not appear nude in the film, this seems to have been pure conjecture. Actress Leslie Donaldson, who played ice skater Christy, underwent skating lessons to prepare for her role, and she even had aid from fellow dancer Anne Ditchburn, who played Lorian, to devise her own routine. But unfortunately, she still found it too difficult, and she ended up slipping on the ice and cutting open her chin, which is actually still detectable in the finished film. To that end, her stunt double ended up playing Christy in the long shots, as well as the iconic killer who pursues her on the ice. By the time the new re-edit was complete and ready for release, it was 1983 and the golden age of slashes was in heavy decline. Original director Richard Chupka was so disappointed with all of his missing material that he refused to put his name to the production, and while he did not use the usual Alan Smithy pseudonym, the fictional character in Curtains, Jonathan Stryker, is instead credited as being the director. Curtains, unfortunately, was rather poorly received by both critics and the box office, disappearing almost without fanfare onto the VHS market only a few months after the initial release, leading one to ponder about whether Simpson was right to re-edit the film at all. Considering that we technically have a mismatch of two different approaches to the film, it has to be said that while the film is a little shaky, the film certainly has some memorable sequences and slightly more interesting characters than your average final exam or scream. Uh, The 1981 film, of course, not Wes Craven's opus. Our characters, for example, are distinctive enough to appreciate. They're maybe not the most developed, but nevertheless, they do stick in the mind. Samantha is a faded beauty of a bygone era, once full of vitality and vigour for her art, but now to be dismissed by a greedy, sleazy director and reduced to virtually nothing. Understandably, she's bitter and wants revenge, though she also wishes to prove herself worthy. There's a few angles where her character is interesting, as we have the Marion Crane vibe, where we sort of spend an extended period of time with her at the beginning of the film, only for her to become secondary after the first 20 minutes. There's then a bit of a hagsploitation kind of vibe, where she's the reddest herring in the plot, built up to look like an aged starlet gone mad, bent on getting revenge for her stolen opportunities. And ultimately, she does end up killing Stryker and Brooke, seemingly out of sheer frustration rather than pure madness. Amanda has very bizarre sexual fantasies, one of which is a rape scenario. An early sequence has us believe that she's being stalked by a prowler who breaks into her house and attempts to sexually assault her, only for it to turn out to be a boyfriend, enacting a fantasy of hers. Another one he mentions is of a pizza boy with an interesting element of pepperonis. Not sure what this entirely has to do with her as a character, but it's certainly interesting to acknowledge that women too can have bizarre and even violent sexual fantasies. As much as it's often attributed to men, people are sexually diverse as they are in appearance. It's certainly refreshing to see a woman who's just unashamed of her proclivities. While she doesn't last for too much longer, she does contribute the creepy doll to the plot, which I imagine had much more importance in the original script. 
As it stands, that element is a little bit of a MacGuffin, merely an interesting image that seems to crop up before a death, and not much more. Patty is a comedian, and a rather fun-looking one to boot. Certainly not the first person you'd expect when considering an actress for a crazed, insane female role. I mean, she smokes pot, she fiddles around with puppets, and she generally takes the whole thing less seriously. I'm wondering whether this is on purpose, though, because it's often assumed, wrongly, that women can enter comedy only because they're not good-looking enough to enter mainstream acting success. While this is clearly not true, it's an old idea that stems from a toxic Hollywood culture, which we will get into in a little bit further detail later. The other characters, like Christie, Brooke, Lorian and Tara, they're all a bit underdeveloped when it comes to their scenes. I mean, Christie seems vulnerable, and she ends up being seduced by the sleazy striker, but due to her other scenes being shot, this angle of her vulnerable nature is not really explored. Though she does give the audience that very memorable skating sequence, which is extremely well executed. Brooke seems equally vulnerable, but more in the same way that Samantha is. Brooke too is a fading beauty with a long career, but instead of being more headstrong and ruthless about it, Brooke is more frightened by the competition, hoping that her talent alone will be enough to secure the role of Audra. It does lead to her being taken advantage of by Stryker, though she does look noticeably more comfortable after doing the nasty with him. This is probably the main reason why Samantha shoots her along with Stryker. Her newfound confidence after having the director's seal of approval, so to speak, almost guarantees that she's probably going to get the role. Tara really doesn't have much to say, and we don't really hear her sing or play music, despite the fact that it's mentioned she's a musician. Lorian, again, is just a dancer, and we only see a small preview of her skills just before she's killed. There's just not enough dialogue from these two to really get a glimpse of what they're like as characters. Even Matthew pretty much has no dialogue, and when we can't get close to a character, you inevitably just don't care when they snuff it. It's a real shame, then, that some of the characters are so fleshed out, whilst others are barely skeletons on the stage. But the only other person of note in the film is Stryker. He's a microcosm of all that's wrong with Hollywood directors. Investing in female talent until no longer interested, either due to age or not reciprocating their piggish, selfish sexual desires. The scene where he embarrasses Samantha is also indicative of the awful treatment of actresses by Hollywood directors. Being merely reduced to sexual objects and judged by their ability to hold the male eye, only discarded if they're unsuccessful. It's truly one of the more uncomfortable scenes in the film, especially as Samantha's already been spurned in a major way by Stryker in the film's opening. The fact that he feels obligated to embarrass her further shows a real callous and misogynistic disregard for her feelings. It's especially true of the scene where Stryker has Lorian seduce Tara as though she were a man, citing to her to use her vulnerability, equating her feminine weakness as sexually empowering for a male. It also manifests in some other ways as well, such as Stryker purposefully insulting Patty in order to get a better performance, and the resultant tantrum that she has. He sleazily commends her on this performance, almost like he doesn't trust her enough to perform without him, and he even gets into bed with both Brooke and Christy. This systematic abuse of female cast members is very similar to the behaviour of dozens of directors over the years, controversial for their disgraceful treatment of their actresses, such as Harvey Weinstein, Morgan Spurlock, Brett Ratner, or even Roman Polanski. Samantha's final advice to Patty is to wait tables, be someone's secretary, get married, grow old together, which is the equivalent of saying, ignore Hollywood, as you'll never be happy. It's pretty good advice, really, seeing as Patty refuses to let that dream go, 
and as a result of her ruthless murders of the competition, she's putting in an asylum. So considering the fact that it's a mishmash of two different people's visions, the film still has quite a rich and varied subtext. Granted, some of the peculiar sequences, like Amanda's dream, the doll and the ice skating bit, they feel a little out of place, but the film's characters and setting are refreshing enough to keep one interested. The film is unfortunately lacking in the gore department, though, despite the fact that such sequences appear to have been filmed, but they were just omitted from the final print. This is one of the major weaknesses of the film, considering it was 1983 anyway at this point. The lack of any plasma on screen is just a major weakness for any slasher. On the same point though, Prom Night was very similar, had no gore, and had more of an emphasis on the characters, and I really like that film. I can't fault Curtains for this when it actually started filming in 1980 as well, so it clearly did take more inspiration from the bloodless tension of something like Halloween or Black Christmas. Stryker was played by Canadian actor John Vernon, recognisable from other cult movies like Killer Clowns from Outer Space and Savage Streets. He's been in a whole host of things though, like the voice of Tony Stark in the Captain America and Iron Man cartoons from the 60s, Dirty Harry, French Yugoslavian shocker sweet movie, and he was in Airplane 2, the sequel as well. British actress Samantha Egar plays the role of the embittered psycho biddy role, Samantha. Egar had previously been in the 1960s version of Dr. Doolittle, as well as The Brood, Demonoid and James Glickenhouse's The Exterminator. Linda Thorson, who played Brooke, she'd previously been in the 1960s TV show The Avengers and she went on to the British soaps Emmerdale and Doctors in the late 2000s. We've seen Lynn Griffin before on Nasty Pasty as well, when we covered Black Christmas on our very first episode all that time ago. In that film, she played the very meek Claire, who's the first victim in the film. But here in Curtains, she's matured into a much more headstrong role as the comedian-turned-murderer, Patty. Eagle-eyed viewers will also recognise Tara, who's played by Sandra Curry. She'd been in Terror Train, which you've covered before. Leslie Donaldson, who played Christy, was a Canadian actress who'd had her fair share of screen queen roles, such as the video nasty Happy Birthday to Me, uh, Funeral Home, and she was also in Deadly Eyes. She also made appearances in Friday the 13th, the series, and most recently this year, the acclaimed drama series The Handmaid's Tale. Whilst virtually having no dialogue, Matthew was played by Michael Wincott, who's been sporadically in a few things here and there, like The Sicilian, Talk Radio, Alien Resurrection, Along Came a Spider, The Count of Monte Cristo, Treasure Planet, Westworld. He's even done voice acting in video games like Halo 2, Darksiders 2 and Syndicate. Director Richard Chupka was mainly a cinematographer, as mentioned before, Curtains was his directorial debut, and he expresses frustration even today and negativity due to the interference from producer Simpson. He did a few direction jobs later, like 1992's Coyote, but he soon went back to cinematography, which he'd worked on with Ilsa, The Tigress of Siberia, Melanie, and 1983's Joy. Writer Robert Guzer Jr. also joined Chupka again on Melanie, and as previously mentioned, was responsible for the Section 3 nasty Prom Night, before going on to American soap operas almost exclusively. Producer Peter Simpson continued work in Canada on a variety of productions, most notably the remainder of the Prom Night series, which became its own little entity. This included Prom Night 2-4, as well as 1994's The Club, which was scripted as Prom Night 5. 
Executive producer Richard Simpson, presumably a relative, also worked on Prom Night, Curtains and Melanie. Composer Paul Zarzar, we've encountered before, on stuff like My Bloody Valentine, and he worked on a lot of the Prom Night films, Body Count and Popcorn, to name a few. Zaza was particularly depressed about the frequent conflict on the set of Curtains, so much so that he was secretly wishing to be fired just so that he could leave the production. He was assisted by the other famous Canadian composer, Carl Citra, who we've mentioned before on Black Christmas. When the reshooting took place, composer J. Peter Robinson was brought on to make a new theme song for the film, though his efforts actually went uncredited. Robinson worked on quite a few recognisable entities, such as Return of the Living Dead Part 2, Highlander 3 and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. The cinematographer on the film was Robert Painter, which probably accounts for the skill of some of the artistic shots that the movie contains. Now, he was fresh off the set of American Werewolf in London, and he, ate a, and he later ended up working on Superman 2 and 3, Trading Places, Michael Jackson's Thriller, National Lampoon's European Vacation, and the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors. Michael McClafferty was the original editor when Chupka's version was being filmed. He'd go later on to work prominently on the Friday the 13th series. But when Simpson demanded reshoots, the final version was edited by Henry Richardson, Richardson would go on to edit two Bond films, Octopussy and A View to a Kill, as well as Runaway Train and the sci-fi movie The 13th Floor. Assistant director Karen Pike also worked as a stunts person on Prom Night and Happy Birthday to Me, both video nasties under the Section 3 moniker, whilst another assistant to the director, Tony Thatcher, had worked on both Black Christmas and Dead of Winter, both of which were winter-based slashes. The special effects guy, Colin Chilvers, was quite a prolific chap who'd worked on loads of things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Superman 1-3, The Incubus, Bride of Chucky, X-Men and Bulletproof Monk. The other chap, Greg Canham, also works quite exclusively on makeup effects on such films as The Incredible Melting Man, Without Warning, which we covered not so long ago, The Howling, Cocoon, etc, etc. Now, the finished film was released in 1983 in both US and UK circuits, to a rather muted response from both audiences and critics alike. It pretty much went onto VHS from Vestron Video in the US the same year, whilst in the UK it got a pre-cert release from Video Space in 1984, just before the introduction of the Video Recordings Act that year. Now, Video Space didn't release anything else contentious, and the film is really quite mild in content. Having said that, so was Prom Night and Terrorize, and they were both video nasties, so who really knows if it attracted attention. It was released uncut in 1986 from Apex Video, and it's been available in that form ever since, until 2004 when it was actually downgraded to a 15 certificate. It has also been released in 2014 on Blu-ray from Synapse Films in the US, and it's region-free too, so any fans can pick it up if they want. It's got a crap ton of extras on it, like a making-of documentary and some commentaries as well. It was thought, though, that the footage that ended up on the cutting room floor would be reinstated for this true uncut version of Curtains, but it soon became apparent that the footage has been destroyed in 2009, meaning that, unfortunately, we'll never get to see the original version. So that was Curtains. Let's waste no time onto a scene change and get straight into Stage Fright, our other film this week. Thank you. 
A young prostitute is suddenly grabbed on a city street and killed by a man wearing an owl mask. As people rush around to see her body, the killer lunges out and breaks into a dance. It's a stage production in a theatre, where director Peter watches with increasing exasperation. Finally, he stops the performance, criticising Alicia, who's playing the prostitute, for not being sexual enough. Brett, who's playing the killer, complains that his mask is stuffy, while stagehand Betty helps Alicia out of her outfit. Ferrari, the producer, complains to Peter that he's overthinking the production, while Sybil reveals to her boyfriend Danny that she's pregnant. Alicia, having sprained her ankle on the shoot, asks the caretaker Willie to let her and Betty out of the side entrance to go to a nearby hospital. Upon arriving, they discover that it's actually a mental institution, though one of the doctors still offers to help her ankle. On their way through the hospital, Alicia spots a patient who stares at her, only to be told by the doctor that it's Irving Wallace, a serial murderer who's also an actor. On their way out, Irving is revealed to have escaped, as a doctor is now in his place with a syringe in his neck. As Alicia re-enters the theatre, Betty parks the car and then realises that she left her key in the vehicle. Returning, she is attacked by Irving, who drives a pickaxe through her mouth. Peter notices Alicia returning and promptly fires her for leaving to go to the hospital. In a huff, Alicia leaves and upon going outside, discovers Betty's corpse. The police arrive just to remove her body and they leave a patrol car near the building to maintain a vigil in the area. After most of the crew leave, Willie entrusts the key to Peter and Corin before heading home himself. Corin is asked to lock the doors and hide the key, with Peter intending to keep the cast in the theatre through the night, having been aspired by Irving Wallace to change the details of the play. Ferrari prepares advanced cash wages for the whole group, including Alicia, who's rehired, while stagehand Mark begins by having Laurel change costume. Whilst getting changed, Laurel is stalked by someone who she thinks is Brett, well, when Brett insists that he didn't and can't find his costume, Alicia becomes suspicious. Brett finds a spare costume, only for Wallace to appear behind him wearing the owl mask. On stage, whilst Corin practices her dance, Wallace comes on stage, and at Peter's insistence, he kills Corin for real by stabbing her. Realising that it's not Brett, the group try to attract the attention of the police outside, but to no avail, as Corin has hidden the key and now cannot reveal where it is. When the lights are turned off by Wallace, the group go backstage to look for the key, whilst Ferrari is left lagging behind. Wallace confronts him and stabs him to death after being offered money. Locked in a dressing room, the group ponder about what to do, and Peter and Danny decide to loot one of the offices to search for a skeleton key. Wallace, however, tries to break into the dressing room, and after Mark tries to hold the door closed, he is killed when Wallace drives a drill through the door and through his body. Upon their return, Peter realises about the workshop and the tools, planning to use them to escape. Now armed, the group enter the main stage and spot Wallace on the scaffolding above stage. Planning to cut him off and ambush him, Peter takes one side and Danny and Sybil take the other. Alicia is knocked out when she slips following Laurel and the remaining group press ahead into an attic room where Peter spots the owl mask behind a crate. Hacking at the mask with his axe, it soon becomes clear that it's not Wallace but actually Brett, tied up and gagged. As Sybil realises that the killer is still alive, she's grabbed from underneath the ground and dragged into the floor. As Danny and Peter try to rescue her, Wallace slices into Sybil's stomach, causing her torn upper torso to be brought up by Danny, completely eviscerating her. 
In his trauma, Danny confronts Wallace directly by jumping through the floor, only for him to be chainsawed through his stomach. In hot pursuit, Wallace chases Peter and Laurel, who try to hack the stage door open to leave, catching Peter and hacking his arm off before decapitating him with an axe. Alicia awakens and searches around for everyone else before finding an injured Laurel in the shower room. Wallace enters after following her blood trail, so Alicia hides in another cubicle and is forced to watch as Wallace finishes Laurel off with a knife in the stomach. After he's gone, Alicia locates a gun and finds a set of keys inside Peter's office and wanders alone, looking for the way out. As she reaches the stage door and tries some of the keys, Wallace enters the main stage area, revealing a ghastly scene where he's assembled all of his dead victims in a grisly tableau vivant, swathed in feathers which are driven by a fan. With the assembly complete, he sits down and rests just as Alicia notices that he has the exit key embedded in the stage in front of him, guarding it. She sneaks underneath the stage and painstakingly tries to prise it out without Wallace noticing. Finally grabbing it, but unfortunately making a clatter doing so, Alicia is ambushed by Wallace as she tries to exit from under the stage. She drives a long nail into his eye and tries to leave the theatre, only for him to catch up with her brandishing an axe. She escapes into the catwalks, where she drives him off with a fire extinguisher, causing him to fall off and hit the stage, seemingly dead. As she walks away to leave the theatre, Wallace springs to life yet again, causing her to dump the contents of a flaming barrel on him and leaving, alerting the police. She's escorted away to a hospital as the police remove the bodies from the scene. The next day, Alicia realises she's left her expensive watch inside the theatre and sweet-talks Willie into letting her in to retrieve it. He explains that the story of the massacre is in the paper and that all eight bodies were recovered. Alicia finds her watch and then notices Willie missing, just as she recounts the scene from the previous night and realises that if there were only eight bodies, Wallace wasn't recovered. He appears behind her, ready to execute her, just as Willie reappears and shoots him between the eyes. As Alicia leaves, Wallace looks at the camera and smiles, still alive. I just want to say a few words. What's happened tonight has been a horrifying experience for everybody here. But we mustn't let it demoralize us. We must carry on, not least for Betty's sake. So, let's take a ten minutes break, and let's get ready, and let's get concentrated, and let's get back to work, right? Alicia, that applies to you, too. Mark? Give me the script. I want to make some changes. Nobody said anything about overtime. You'll be paid immediately. At this very moment, Mr. Ferrari is preparing the cash. I was speaking to a couple of journalists outside, and they told me a few things about our psychopathic killer. For instance, Brett, your character will no longer be an anonymous owl. You'll have a real name. Irving Wallace. How lucky for you, Peter. There's no business like show business. Well, good night, everybody. Well, the changes we've got to make are mostly in the opening scenes. Peter, open this door. Open the door! All right! I'll open the door. And everybody can go home and stay home 
and we'll forget the whole thing and cancel the show. How long had you been out of work before this, Alice? Yeah. Laurel? Brett? How about Sybil and Danny? You all accepted this job on a percentage basis because you were in the shit. None of you are stars, nor am I. But this is our big chance. We can fill the theater and get a five or six month run out of this. You know that people have a morbid curiosity about murder. And they're going to line up for blocks to see a show in which one of the actresses has been murdered by the real life maniac in the plot. Can't you understand that? But Betty wasn't an actress. I told the newspaper she was. It wasn't enough to say she was just a little wardrobe mistress. You're scum. No, I'm not. Well, what a rather stylish and special film we've got here. Stage Fright was Michele Soave's directorial debut of a feature film, after previously working as a protégé for Dario Argento, Joe D'Amato and Lamberto Bava. While he had released documentary Dario Argento's World of Horror and directed the music video for Argento's Phenomena, Soave considers this film his first definitive outing. With quite an increased budget of a million dollars and some co-production collaboration with America, Suave manages to create a rather brilliant and enticing pastiche of both giallo, comedy and slasher elements. It's just a massively fun ride, so let's get into the specifics. The film's principal photography was between April and May of 1986, notably during the period when the Chernobyl disaster was happening in Russia. Inspired to replicate the feel of an Argento film, Suave has made the film purposely theatrical and stylish, and distinctly giallo-like, despite the fact that the audience knows who the killer actually is. When Wallace looks through the power tools, it has that shaky point of view similar to giallo, and the sweeping flourishes over all the DIY tools as he chooses his next weapon. The fact that it's set in a theatre too allows for a lot more of the bizarre articles like scenery, masks, dressed mannequins and costumes to be glazed over and focused on. Very similar to Argento's deep red vignettes in a sense, and even blood and black lace really, with the colourful mannequins having a lot of attention. The film's highly synthesised and rock-based jives are also clearly inspired by the electronic mashings of Goblin's tracks, while the film's colourful palette is clearly inspired by the careful prismatic choices in Argento's Suspiria and Inferno. A lot of the film's set pieces are also inspired by other works of others. For example, the grandiose but grotesque tableau that Wallace assembles of the dead cast members, very similar to the conclusion of both Madhouse and Happy Birthday to Me, which actually we mentioned almost word for word on Curtains. Mark's death by Power Drill seems to reference Brian De Palma's Body Double, which is an American take on the giallo, while the reveal of Wallace behind Brett as he bends near a mirror is almost a clear reference to Argento's Tenebrae. The scene of Laurel being discovered half-dead in the shower cubicle by Alicia also harkens back to David Cronenberg's Rabid, whilst the scene of Wallace murdering Corin for real on stage is not unlike the scenes from Dario Argento's opera, which was released later the same year. So, while Suave doesn't really score points for originality, he more than compensates in the execution of the film. One of the standout shots for me is the sequence where Alicia notices the exit key jammed into the stage, right in front of the killer, and then sneaking under the stage to prise it out. 
The composition of the shot with the key right up close to the camera, with Wallace menacingly sitting in the background, is nothing short of genius, especially when Lucifer, the cat, begins to suspect that something's going on and starts sniffing around the key. In terms of cinematography, this shot is probably one of my favourites ever. Even the film's climax, where Wallace inexplicably comes to life and winks at the screen, despite having a bullet in his head, it's rather a large nod to the rapidly popular idea of never having the killer in a slasher film be able to die. The characters, as well, are memorable for all the right reasons. Whilst a little more than fodder, the writing allows the characters to spout some rather daft dialogue, and it is genuinely funny at times. In one segment, when Brett hears Laurel complaining, he says, Stop bitching, honey, you could always go back to microwaving chili at Mexico Joe's. To which she responds, Yeah, and you could go back to selling your ass in the men's room at the bus station. In fact, the flamboyantly gay and camp Brett is one of the film's highlights, as he and Laurel squabble so frequently, even in another instance where he shines a spotlight on Laurel making out with a stagehand, leading to her shouting, You Bastard, which gets the retort, a rose by any other name. The director Peter is your stereotypical asshole, one whom you can't wait to be bumped off in a suitably grisly fashion. I mean, how slimy do you have to be to change the details of your play when one of the stagehands is murdered, and hyping up the details to the journalists to raise interests? Peter is just a genuine twat. Even Wallace seems to think so after Peter throws Laurel towards him in order to save his own skin. Wallace, of course, just walks past her and goes after him anyway. Good riddance, really. Other characters, like Sybil and Danny, have more subtle nuances to distinguish their characters from the rest. I mean, the pair are a couple, and Sybil has just recently become pregnant, adding a bit more of a nihilistic touch to her eventual death. This too seems to have been lifted from Friday the 13th Part 3, where the character of Debbie makes several mentions as to her pregnant status, only to be violently torn apart by Jason when it comes to crunch time. Mark is pretty much Peter's lapdog with only a British accent to distinguish him, whilst Ferrari, the producer, is attributed a lecherous, sleazy attitude by the others. I can't say that this aspect was fully fleshed out though, as he just seemed more money-hungry than anything else leading to a rather interesting death when he offers Wallace a bribe in order not to kill him. Wallace himself is relatively silent, but imposing as he mashes his way through the film's cast. And though odd, the owl mask is actually kind of disturbing at times, simply for its bizarre nature. His behaviour of assembling the dead bodies for a tableau on stage is not only visually stunning, but completely crazy. And he actually settles down amongst the whirlwind of feathers and sinew and relaxes in a chair, clearly at ease with the whole scene. That is pretty messed up. Not only is Wallace messed up, so are his brutal killings. Even when they're not particularly bloody, such as Betty's pickaxe to the mouth or Ferrari's off-screen stabbing, conceptually they're interesting and well-executed, worthy of any giallo picture. Of course, Suave doesn't disappoint in the gore stakes either, though, as we have some incredibly gruesome demises to behold, such as Mark being drilled through the stomach, Sybil being ripped in half and disemboweled, Danny being chainsawed to death, Peter having an arm lopped off and then decapitated, Laurel being brutally gutted with a knife. I mean, Brett, of course, played by Giovanni Lombardo Radic, gets another signature death sequence, this time wrapped in that unfortunate don't-go-in-the-woods-come-the-descent kind of way, where Peter mistakes him for the killer and hacks him up accidentally with a hatchet. Not only are the effects stunning, the soundtrack of the film is also incredibly entertaining. 
It has a frenetic, energetic vibe to it that keeps you watching rather like Goblin, as I've mentioned before. Throwing in generous helpings of saxophone and synthesised dirges, you get a latecomer to the slasher party that constantly strives to entertain its audience, and it wins really successfully. It's hard not to commend Suave and appreciate the fact that he's worked with dozens of Italian horror masters to hone his craft the right way. While his career was relatively short, he brought a memorable drawer of films to the forefront of Italian cinema, and this first taste of his talents was truly a harbinger of the good things yet to come. Barbara Capusti, who played the final girl Alicia, had previously been in Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper, before landing the role in Suave's Stage Fright. She later had a role in Argento's opera later the same year, and she returned to work with Suave on The Church and Cemetery Man. David Brandon played the utter bastard Peter. He'd previously been in Joe D'Amato's Caligula, The Untold Story, before Stage Fright. Afterwards, he worked with Lamberto Barva on a few of his films, like Delirium, also known as Photos of Joya, and Until Death. Danny was played by Robert Gligoroff from Fulci's Murder Rock, whilst Martin Phillips, who played Mark, had previously appeared uncredited in Pierre Paolo Pasolini's Canterbury Tales. Mickey Knox, who played the older police officer outside, next to the younger one who's played by the director Soavi, had been in Italian productions for a long time. He made a lot of appearances in American TV and movies, and he then started work as an English voice dubber on Italian movies since the beginning of the 80s, like in Bronx Warriors, for example, or Murder Rock. After stage fright, Knox appeared in Ghoulies 2, Godfather Part 3, and as a voice actor in Titanic The Legend Goes On. Brett was played by probably one of the most famous of the video nasties faces, Giovanni Lombardo Radic, who often went by his anglophone name, John Morgan. He was in Cannibal Apocalypse, City of the Living Dead, House on the Edge of the Park, Cannibal Ferox, Phantom of Death, The Church, The Sect, and Body Puzzle, amongst many others. Quite humorously, he seems to suffer increasingly violent deaths in his films, something that has become a bit of an in-joke with him when he speaks to fans. James Sampson, who we've met before on Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 and Shocking Dark, is back in this picture as the caretaker Willie, who has a strange, irritating fascination with saying, right between the eyes. Probably the only irritating thing that I found about the whole film. Mary Sellers, whom we've spotted before on Ghost House, appears here in the role of Laurel, and whilst he's uncredited, Alain Smith, who played the father from Ghost House, also appears in a non-speaking role as one of the security officers who's transporting Wallace to his room. Ferrari was played by Piero Vida, and surprisingly we've seen him before too, albeit in a much older film, uh, the Giallo film's Short Night of the Glass Dolls, but he was also in The Night Porter, where, funnily enough, he played the day porter in that movie. Although you don't get to see him directly, George Eastman, or Luigi Montefiore, also appears in Stage Fright as the masked Wallace, presumably because of Eastman's meaty, imposing frame. We've seen Eastman before on Hands of Steel, and also when he wrote the script for Terror Express. Most video nasty enthusiasts, though, will recognise him as the killer from Joe D'Amato's Absurd and Anthropophagus. Director Michele Soave really needs no introduction, as we've covered him many times before. He's frequently appeared as an actor in various films too, like Alien Terror just a few weeks back. He of course went on to direct The Church, The Sect and Cemetery Man, and he's had brief hiatuses in between his work due to being a parent, understandably, and I believe his son also became ill at one point during the 90s in quite a serious capacity. 
Thankfully for us, he soldiers on even today and continues to work in Italian TV. Apart from appearing as the masked killer, George Eastman also wrote the script for Stage Fright with some help from Sheila Goldberg, who not only appears as the nurse who rejects Betty's and Alicia's claim of injury, but she also wrote the scripts for Body Count, Killing Birds, which we've covered before, and Beyond the Door 3. The infamous Joe D'Amato produced the film, whom we've encountered before many times, and he was assisted in this by his frequent collaborator Donatello Donati, who worked on most of D'Amato's films as an assistant director. We've encountered Donati before ourselves when we covered Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals, and Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. The music was done by a collaborative effort, one of whom was English composer Simon Boswell. Now, Boswell had worked with Argento on Phenomena, and he also went on to work on Demons 2, Lamberto Barva's Delirium, all four of his Bravido Giallo series, including The Ogre, Dinner with a Vampire, Until Death, and Graveyard Disturbance. Much later in his career, he worked on the Clive Barker adaptation, Lord of Illusions, uh, The Crying Game, Shanghai Noom, The ABCs of Death, and Hobo with a Shotgun. He was assisted by Stefano Mainetti, whom we've covered not so long ago on Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. Renato Tafiori was the cinematographer. He also worked on Argento's opera and Suave's later film, The Church. Editor Kathleen Stratton was from Killing Birds and Ghost House, both of which we've covered before. Whilst likewise, the assistant director, Claudio Latanzi, we've encountered before as the director of the aforementioned Killing Birds. The film's gory special effects were also a collaborative effort. Firstly, there was Robert Gold, who worked on D'Amato's The Alcove and Endgame. And there was also Dan McClansky and Roland McClansky, both of whom worked on Ghost House. And finally, there was Alan Sloan, who worked on Interzone. The film debuted at the Avoriaz Fantastic Film Festival in France under the title Bloody Bird, before receiving an official release in Italy in August of 1987 as Deliria. The film has had various titles, one of which is Aquarius, and I'm sure what this is meant to be referencing, but it may be related to the fish tank in the mental institution which Wallace may have seen through his commitment especially as the poster for the film shows the cast members' heads in a fish tank and the killer shattering the said tank with an axe. Other titles include Soundstage Massacre, The Night of Fear or Theatre of Fear. It apparently did well in its native Italy, but it failed to get much of a cinematic distribution anywhere else. Being released in 1987 too, the film skipped the nasty scare in the UK by a few years. The first taste that we got of the film was in early 1987, when Avatar released the film on VHS in legitimate BBFC-sanctioned form. However, because the distributor was nervous about incurring the BBFC's wrath following the whole nastiness, they pre-cut the film by about 11 seconds to reduce the violence to a more tolerable level. Victims of the censorship were Betty's death by pickaxe, Mark being drilled in the stomach, and Laurel's gutting in the shower. It remained in this pre-cut form until Redemption released it intact, past uncut at Certificate 18. It has been subsequently re-released by Vipco as well, so it is available for everybody, and it's also on Blu-ray too in the US, so collectors can import it whichever version that they would like.
So that was Stage Fright and it's the end of our show for yet another week, people. Thanks, as always, for listening to me jabber on and on. I hope you enjoyed this week's films. Next week, we're staying on the same sort of topic, but we're significantly ramping up the violent stakes. Two new films, both of which have more enhanced elements of misogyny, will be gracing your ears next time. I'll be covering Buddy Cooper's The Mutilator and Lucio Fulci's sleazy giallo slasher The New York Ripper. Now, I've actually seen both of these films before for once, so it will be interesting to revisit them. Until then, look after yourselves, and as ever, let me know your thoughts on these films, drop us a message on either Twitter or Facebook, or through to our email address, nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. It doesn't have to be in-depth or academic. I love talking casually about horror movies and what people like about these films, so don't be shy. Until then, see you around, and I'll speak to you all next week. Goodbye all. (laughs) 